0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: You're listening to the UAE's
2: number one talk radio station.
3: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you on Afternoons and get ready for experts galore. We were talking health in humans and pets, starting with a wellness tracker. For women in particular, based on her own experiences of stress and burnout, Amy Thompson decided to start Moody, a well-named app for tracking your hormones. But how is it all going? How many downloads have they have, And why is it so important for women in particular to track where they are in their cycle? Tackling health anxiety with psychologist Dr. Anjuli, why has there been such a spike? And what are some of the treatment methods for children as well as adults? And turning our attentions, tackling tongue ties. It was Dr. Delphine and Dr. Tina live in the studio in babies, in children and in adults. What issues can come up if they go untreated? And of course, taking your questions too. And it was doctors of a different kind for pets and vets, Dr Vito and behaviourist Anna on hand as we ask, can cats get jealous? How should you introduce a new dog to the family? And talking all things healthcare too. We're talking health this hour and women's health in particular between now and half past with Amy Thompson, who joins us now. She had her own experience of stress induced burnout that led her to quitting her job and creating Moody Month. It's a wellness app to help women just like her, just like me just like many of you listening. Um, Her first company, Scene, worked with clients like Nike, Microsoft. Um, She sold that back in 2018 and now launched this tech company, which focuses at using machine learning to personalise hormone insights and ultimately some health solutions for women. Thank you so much for joining us in Dubai, for one thing. How are you? Yeah, really good. I'm so interested in your personal mission, but also your wider mission. So, Would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about what you went through that led you to the point of deciding that that life was not working for you and there could be another way for you and half of the population.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, like many things, there's always a kind of convergence point in kind of personal and professional that often lead to these things. And for me personally, I was working in a in an early stage of data uh, in communications, so quantified value for brands. Um, and in that, I was looking at how data could be used to be able to understand, you know, the best path to optimize for audiences. Um, in the process of building that, which was, you know, successful in its own right, I was traveling a lot. So I was on a lot of different time zones. I was pushing myself beyond limits. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't really understanding the importance of nutrition, not just for weight, but actually for mind-body optimization Mm -hmm. and exercise in the same way. So I was... I was told, as most of us are, exercising all the time. And, you know, this is a little bit before the kind of new wave of mental health as well, right? Not to show my age, but it was, (laughs) you know, 2016, 2011 through to 2016. And there wasn't a huge conversation about anything
3: other than exercise just to get fit. Yeah, or to get into shape. And often this kind of beasting idea of like, you know, running hard, burpees, but basically kind of... Quite stressful exercise,
4: exactly, and that is that was it, right? So I was running all the time. I was also working with Nike, so I was understanding that fitness was central core to my life, and I was over exercising essentially and producing too much cortisol in my body, and so that led to essentially a hormone burnout, um, and my periods entirely stopped. And I I went to so many doctors, so many experts, and in the end, what actually helped was resetting my routines around sleep and structuring, especially around time zones. Changing exercise to have a huge amount more rest and not running 5K every day, mm-hmm. like I was some kind of athlete when I actually was not. Um, and really understanding the importance of low like stress exercise on muscle strengthening and just, and just kind of mind-body connection. How long did that take, if you don't mind me asking? So the problem was that I'd burnt myself out. And so if we're doing this more regularly in the kind of interim as almost a kind of way of life, understanding the importance of these cyclical behaviours around hormones in relation to how we should be eating and working out, we don't end up in burnout situations or we at least mitigate
3: the, ne- the negative impact or potential impact. The difficulty is when you're really busy... Yeah, how do you take that pause, and how do you reflect on how you're feeling? You well, know, how- like that's that's it's, it. It yeah. often does get to the breaking point. We're like, oh, I wish I'd been doing this three years ago, and I would have got to that point. So this is about tuning in.
4: It is, yeah, and it's also understanding what is the rhythm you can use to create organisation in a very low bar way. So. What I wish I'd known, so this is the way you kind of start to build, right, is what would I have loved to tell my 13, 14, 15-year-old self to be able to help actually build healthy routines? And what I wish I'd understood was if I'd have started, because I was making time for exercise and and health, but if I'd have done it in a different way, organized around the way in which my cycle was operating, I would have actually had a huge amount more benefit, Mm -hmm. but also I would have taken rest at the moments where it was beneficial to my body. So
3: now we're talking about tracking and I think you know period trackers have been around for years and years and years what makes Moody different? So we look at it from the perspective
4: of a daily fluctuation um, and that can be tracked across your menstrual cycle. So rather than looking at bleed or ovulation as the primary points, we're looking at forecasting the mental physical changes that happen in relation to an estrogen, progesterone, a few others, uh, intersections. So take, for example, you know, four phases is how we break it down. So you have your bleed phase, which is actually when your estrogen is beginning to rise towards your ovulation. So, you know not everyone but the kind of general rule is that that tends to create this kind of elevated experience a lot more strength but there are different ways in which the app accounts for kind of ways of fluctuation and and difference paths Mm -hmm. you then have your kind of ovulation which can create again a more elevated experience you feel stronger you tend to have glossier hair shinier skin some other benefits there's
3: some studies that you know everyone's a bit more attractive around yeah yeah
4: and also apparently um, and we've looked into a lot of research around this around symmetry that your face has slightly changes in terms of symmetry, which is very interesting. But
3: also more research coming out about the emotional side around ovulation as well, almost not like PMS type symptoms, but certainly heightened sensitivities.
4: Exactly. And that's where there is difference between how someone responds to an oestrogen fluctuation. Some people find it anxiety inducing and some people actually find it elevating. So it also depends on personality type. And it was important for us to have. That's where technology comes in, right, where you can create variability. You can create a, a point where somebody can understand more in terms of difference. And then you have your luteal phase or you have, you know, post ovulation and luteal, which are inherently often where you experience things like the PMS symptoms, the anxiety, the kind of, you know, the bloating, the cramps, the things which are maybe the more negative side. Mm But actually, I think what's important is that the pattern recognition of understanding how these things interact gives you power to be able to understand exactly, as I said, when you rest, when you
3: do more restful exercise. Or what even, kind of nutrition. I'm just trying to think about like that mental health side as well, like when you yeah. feel more, cap- more clear minded or making decisions or I don't know, doubting yourself. Exactly.
4: And it's not about changing your
3: behavior. Mm. So you don't change how you
4: operate. You simply just use the information and the science in a way to organize yourself. You reduce and one of the major things we get feedback on is relationships so it changes hugely (laughs) the communication
3: between partners so So, rather going I don't want a divorce Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly it's
4: just today of exactly and some of the letters we get are really heartfelt you know actually it completely changes their life and their ability to communicate with a partner or even or even friends and family wow. um, but also focus and memory because your memory and your focus changes very dramatically and so just in my own example I, I don't normally need a notebook actually post baby I do all the time because <laughs> my memory is completely shot but uh, you don't normally need a notebook in the first half of your cycle for me that was the experience and then the second half I would always need something as a reference point to remind myself of the key things that i needed to kind of jot down because my memory wasn't as clear so it's equipping
3: and empowering exactly. amy thompson's with us today from moody month wellness app and uh, we're going to be talking about how that works how many downloads have they had and um also you know do we underestimate our hormones ladies do you track your fertility do you track your periods and ultimately the role of femtech in empowering women to take control of this information that's next <laughs> In conversation now with Amy Thompson. She is the founder of Moody Month. It's a wellness app to help women like us, really, when we think about how important it is to understand our bodies, to listen to our bodies, even when we are in a really, really fast paced environment, probably even even more so. Would you mind kind of telling us in a nutshell, Amy, about the benefits of tracking our hormones through the month?
4: Yeah. So firstly, optimizing mental and physical health, pretty much a a bonus uh, Mm -hmm. happiness. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that understanding that there are fluctuations of mental and physical health changes across the menstrual cycle. And the way we split it out is across four phases. So why having a tool which allows you to forecast that is helpful is it completely changes the way you organize, the way you think, the way you communicate.
3: Your um, expectations
4: of yourself. Exactly. It reduces
3: guilt yeah. and it improves happiness. Can I ask then about building the app and the business? What was it like from like that nuts and bolts behind the scenes? Because now, I mean, I've been using it for a while now. Um, it's so user friendly. It looks beautiful. Um, we're going to talk about some of the points of difference at the tracks in a minute. But in terms of The business side, what's that been like? Well,
4: I think, if I'm honest, I was a little naive. (laughs) Um, I went into this with an amazing board of doctors, an amazing board of experts behind me. Um, And I think that because... I had this incredible female team. So we wanted to build an all-female business, not just from a kind of academic perspective, but also from an engineering point of view. And that created a, a kind of form of bias, much like if you write a novel as a male author, you write a female experience and a female character in a very different way. And that's what we wanted to create with this. We wanted to code the app from a female experience point of view. And we get a lot of feedback to say that people people feel it. Yeah, it resonates. resonates. Yeah, it resonates. Um, and then in terms of the journey, it's it's been one where, you know, we started out with a very clear intention. How do you use data to help people better understand themselves in a safe and, and, and structured way and also in a way which allows us to be more effective? And um, that has in itself been a really eye-opening and, and an important aspect of
3: what we've built. Can I ask you, you said the word safe there, and I think it's really yeah. important to touch on this because a lot of people, um, especially around things like femtech period and fertility tracking have data privacy concerns we've seen you know really grim things out of the us in particular where pregnancy and period tracking apps you know, that data was sold to advertisers people being sent adverts for nappies after they had a miscarriage you know just yep. ho- horrendous how do you assure users that their data is safe so i have to say setting our own precedents for
4: things has been really important and seeing that actually Take for example your point there about receiving adverts for nappies after after having a miscarriage. You know a really harrowing and very traumatizing experience. So advertising and not having any identifiable IDs is really important. You know that's possible for us to do with Apple, but it's actually not at the moment. So we don't really advertise on Google until they update their kind of uh, privacy. So we make very proactive decisions about how we market and, and promote the product based on our understanding about privacy and, and data in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, And then secondary is also just how we built the product. You know, it's... It's really, it is about customer choice, though. So there is no possibility. We did really try at the beginning to create a fully anonymized experience. But if you don't have an account, you don't have an email associated, it's if you lose your phone or if you break the app, it, it then means you have no way of accessing it. And that in itself is more annoying, actually. Absolutely, than, when you've already been putting yeah.
3: that putting those data points in.
4: Exactly. So uh, we, we have got that aspect, but everything else is anonymized. So it's encrypted and anonymized. And so we call it a semi, semi-anonymized system. And... Also, in terms of choice, you know, being really clear on what that is, how you lay out your T's and C's, how you communicate to people about what privacy is. And I think what's been really eye opening is is people's acute awareness of this around things that were happening in the States Mm -hmm. and the importance, therefore, of of choice um, and providing people with information. Not, we're not saying this is a hundred percent for everyone, but you do have to make an informed choice and making sure people are clear on how that works and, and what's gone into it.
3: So, how many downloads of Moody now?
4: Ah, oh, hundreds of thousands, and wow. it's a really amazing. Yeah, it's it's a crazy place to be in now, um, and it's it's a really exciting moment because we really start to see that when people use the app and understand the benefit of this kind of daily hormone forecast and what that means is it's actually a rich text experience so rather than lots of graphs and there are graphs in the app but lots okay, of data we all like an infographic <laughs> exactly but it's not heavy on the infographic in the first experience right we've, we've designed it almost like a weather forecast so it just gives you an experience of some information about the science behind what's happening and then
3: a recommendation of what you can do to address it. Well, I was having a nosy this morning um, and was treated to a 15 minute video about, you know, tapping, you know, about EFT. And I was like, that's incredible that someone you know is there there's this resource of taking 10-15 minutes to understand why I might be feeling particularly stressed at this time and ultimately what I can do about it so it sounds like you've done a bit of an Avengers assemble and brought together some brilliant people (laughs) yeah
4: and all women right so it's a a kind of incredible way to also make you feel related supported and and understanding different practices but all between five and ten minutes so Mm -hmm. we try and make everything really low bar really easy some of the most engaged content actually in the app is reflexology which really surprised me and breathwork
3: Yeah, breath work I saw, yoga, stretching, because it's all there. You're not having to go off to, you know, YouTube and, you know, Chase exactly. around the houses. A message here from Julie saying, how about sleep? Can you see the impact of sleep in someone's
4: cycle? Absolutely. So um, it's actually one of the major things that we've just done in integration with wearables. So you can start to see a correlation between disrupted sleep patterns and your menstrual um, cycle data within the app. Um, but even if you don't wear a wearable, there is huge, like there's a lot of research and there's a huge correlation between rising estrogen and disrupted sleep. Um, and then also obviously in the second half of your cycle, where actually progesterone creates, more of a sedating effect in a majority of people so you can have kind of slightly deeper sleep. Um, however, again, because different people have different reactions to hormones, this can this can vary. But it is actually a really important fact of when you think about data and how we've been visualized data, such as sleep data, to not layer on a menstrual experience onto that sleep data doesn't diversify the reality of the experience mm-hmm. from male to female. Mm-hmm. And it is a very different experience. You know, our bodies chemically are very different. And so actually, when you think about a wearable, they're not really designed for a female body. Mm -hmm. They're designed for a kind of every day you wake up because men's cycles are are 24 hours. So
3: interesting. I've had loads of people asking for your details.
4: (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs) Of course. So so if you want to
3: send me the word app or Moody, which I love the name of, by the way. Yeah. Um, I will send you the Instagram probably the best place to go. Instagram is the best Moody month. Um,
4: and I have a personal Instagram, which is Amy T stories. So yeah, but my Moody month is where all the information about the app, all the information about the the product, and kind of all the science behind it as well is
3: showcased. Tell you what, app to 4001, I will send it over. And lastly, we've got about 30 seconds left, Amy. Um, what are your hopes? You know, if you were to come and sit in this chair in five years time, what kind of conversations you hope we'd be having?
4: I really hope that At least five million women understand that the phases of their cycle are impacting their mind and body and have almost got a a new wave of kind of confidence Mm -hmm. from this science and how it can just help you
3: be a happier, healthier person. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing, obviously, your personal passion for this Um, and also opening, I think, an awful lot of eyes to just how much more information we've got. Literally, you know, the answers are inside us. We just need to listen to them. Absolutely. Great to have you in Dubai and we'll see you very soon. Indeed, Um, Amy Thompson joining us and it is Instagram.com forward slash Moody Month. now, health anxiety. Post-pandemic, my goodness, we are completely overloaded with health-related information, you know, Dr Google. Health anxiety is increasingly common, but what can we do about it? What exactly is it? Dr Anjali Dillon is with us today, health psychologist at Connect Psychology. I'd never heard of health anxiety until the pandemic. How are you?
5: Yeah, I'm good, thank you.
3: Um, Can I ask then, why is this particular area of interest to you?
5: I've always been interested in health psychology and um, you know I've come to Dubai and I can see there's a need for it. People are struggling with health anxiety. What is it exactly? Yes that would be helpful. <laughs> so it's basically when an individual is preoccupied with the thought that they have a serious medical condition and they may not even have the evidence to back that up mm-hmm. but they are absolutely convinced that something's wrong with them and then it's just taking their over their daily functioning every day. So,
3: so that's going to say it, it's not a case of, you know, basic hypochondria, which you know it's mm-hmm. quite common. This is something that interrupts how you move around the world, impacts decisions you might make. And as you said, some of it might be complete fallacy. I mean the, mm-hmm. the unfortunate thing about us humans is we are prone to confirmation bias. Yes. So if we start to look for the clues then we're going to find them. How bad can it get, Doctor?
5: It can get really bad. It can get to a point where people are not functioning on a daily basis. If you think you know people are having to go to work, they might have a family, if all your focus is on is I've got a problem with my physical health, and that's all you can think about, then it's really disruptive.
3: Is there a demographic that this affects more? Have you noticed it in you know different genders, cultures, ages, or does it not discriminate?
5: I don't think it discriminates it it depends on a number of triggers so for example if you have had a family member and they've perhaps had a diagnosis maybe it's a cancer diagnosis and maybe sadly they've passed away or you've seen them going through treatment that can trigger a lot of anxiety and that means you're thinking then is this going to happen to me maybe you've had a medical trauma Mm -hmm. or maybe you've got a chronic illness and that is is very common so cancer diagnosis diabetes diagnoses we we see a lot of health anxiety in these populations
3: so can i ask about that mind-body connection yes. and I, I guess a bit of chicken and egg mm-hmm. you know how can those concerns and those very real worries impact your physical health yes
5: well that's the whole point between uh, betwi- behind health psychology so you know People see them as separate entities, but they're absolutely not. They go hand in hand. If we're feeling something from a mental health perspective, there's going to be a physiological response.
3: And it's interesting to think about how it can manifest because for some people it might be, you know, an upset tummy or disrupted sleep mm-hmm. or skin patterns and, you know, all of these things. And then it must be really difficult to start to unpick the origin of it.
5: Absolutely. It's a cycle. So think about feeling really panicked. You know, we might have sweaty palms. Our heart rate might be increasing. And then we've got physical symptoms and then Mm. we've got mental health symptoms and and they just, there's a cycle. And how do you break that cycle is is what's really important.
3: Can we say the dreaded P word, pandemic? Um, (laughs) What impact did it have on health anxiety?
5: Yeah, it's just huge. If you think about, the focus of information we had on all all these health related fears doom that, scrolling endlessly fear of contamination mm-hmm. the statistics how many people have passed away to th- today hand washing oh hand washing even myself i can't tell you i was just sanitizing constantly mm-hmm. um so it it's been huge and health anxiety and anxiety in general is absolutely huge now and it's something we need to bring awareness to
3: So that's one piece, but I guess it's the what next. If someone finds themselves in clinic with you, Dr. Anjali, Mm -hmm. about this is, and I'm sure it's ringing bells for people listening. I've got some messages we're going to come to in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, How can you help them? What are some of the coping strategies? How do you support someone? Because I'm just being completely honest here. Mm -hmm. I would imagine if I was good friends or I was married to someone who had health anxieties, my patients would be pretty stretched pretty fast. Be like, get a grip. You're absolutely fine. Yeah. Which, probably isn't that helpful
1: no I was going to say (laughs) not so
5: helpful but but it's really important I think the first thing is actually validating and normalizing how people are feeling because they're feeling this way because of a particular reason so it's really important to bring that awareness Mm -hmm. because actually that can bring patients some empowerment to understand what's going on for them at the root and then we need to think about okay what will help so CBT we could use so thought challenging trying to get them to think about rational thoughts rather than irrational thoughts and then using uh, sort of stress reduction techniques progressive muscle relaxation mindfulness all of these things can be really helpful to bring that soothing system up which decreases our threat system
3: had a couple of questions we are going to go to mm-hmm. on the text line. If you, This is ringing any bells or red flags with you, 4001. Joining us from Connect Psychology, we've got health psychologist, Dr Anjali Dillon. Um, a message here saying, how about in children? Uh, our nine-year-old has developed some obsessive behaviours and worries constantly about us dying. That's no mm-hmm. name on that one. But, I mean, as a parent, that must be so distressing.
5: So distressing. I mean... It's so, so difficult for children because they probably don't understand what's going on. But we see children at the clinic clinic, and we can integrate play therapy into their therapy so that it feels like they're not doing something so
3: daunting. Mm -hmm. Um, But absolutely, we can work with children. Um, Shilpa's asking, how is this different to a phobia? That's a really interesting point because when we've discussed phobias before, you, know, you can do things like exposure therapy and mm-hmm. you know different techniques. Is it, is it a phobia of being unwell or is health anxiety a different entity?
5: I think it's a different entity, but in, it is in a similar way. Look, we're, it, we're fearful of something. We're fear, fearful of something in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about how we work with that and what that trigger is for that particular person. So if it's chronic illness they've got a chronic illness themselves it's about trying to manage their anxieties rather than challenge the anxieties
3: you're here as a psychologist not a psychiatrist so you can't medicate as Correct, such yeah. but you know do medications have a role is that something you've worked with you know colleagues on
5: yes yeah, so psychiatrists can prescribe medication for anxiety but as psychologists we we try and um,
3: use talking therapy to try and help individuals. What kind of results have you had in the past? I'm not asking you to name names, but I always think it's <laughs> useful to think about examples if there's anyone that, you know, has had a really tough time of this and has managed to come out the other side. Mm.
5: The most common example I can use is working with uh, cancer patients who have a lot of health anxiety. Uh, we have something called scan anxiety. So every time a scan's coming up, they're really, really anxious. Um, it can be so, so helpful to break that anxiety down and just help them with techniques and, and coping mechanisms to get them through mm-hmm. their journey.
3: Uh, and having, you know, ha- with, I have friends who are, you know, in remission now, but, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to those annual checks of, gosh, you know, what does this mean? It comes back and a message here, um, what, could could this help following um, pregnancy loss? That's actually, that is such a that is such a powerful point because you know, so I would say women, but actually so many couples are afraid to try to conceive after a yes. after a traumatic loss. Would that come under this?
5: Yes, absolutely. So if we think about the associations we then develop after we've had a traumatic experience, we can work with all of that to try and break that down and help individuals deal with that loss mm-hmm. first of all and then manage the anxiety so that they can then move forward to
3: something that's meaningful for them a she is saying is medication essential for the management of health anxiety or can therapy alone be sufficient
5: in my opinion um, I think therapy alone can be sufficient but that's not to say that some people
3: won't benefit from medication and also depends on severity as of well how long it's been going yeah, on absolutely. any final words on this when if someone is listening to this going oh my goodness this <laughs> is me and I think it takes a huge amount of self-awareness to recognize that your behavior patterns are perhaps you know not not helping you mm-hmm. or someone 's listening going yeah, this is, this is my partner, this is my parent, this is my child. What's the first port of call? You know, is, is it a case of going to your family doctor to rule out that perhaps there aren't any medical issues and then getting a referral to someone such as yourself? Or could you go straight to a psychologist, doctor?
5: You could go straight to a psychologist. Um, but of course, if, if you feel something needs uh, reviewing from a medical point of view, do that. That's important. Get that peace of mind. Absolutely. But uh, we are here as psychologists to help please don't struggle and keep going when you've got this big worry you've got these anxieties impacting you on a on a daily basis seek that support because that's what we're here for
3: well i have to say i'm embarrassed that we haven't addressed this on the show before so thank (laughs) thank you for raising awareness around this i think an awful lot of people are struggling and suffering and it is great to know that there are people i mean someone who is a health psychologist just absolutely perfect thank you so so much thank you really appreciate it We've got not one but two experts in the studio today. So maybe you want to breastfeed your newborn baby, but they just won't latch. Maybe their attempts are actually hurting you. We're talking about tongue ties in babies, but also in children and even us adults. How can they affect development, even pain? What treatment options are available? Dr. Tina and Dr. Delphine in the studio. Dr. Delphine is a French family doctor who specialises in infant feeding, breastfeeding medicine. She's got a postgrad in women's health, um, a degree in lactation and breastfeeding, and is a certified board lactation consultant. So vast experience in diagnosing and treating infant tongue and lip ties. And uh, Dr. Tina is with us today, American trained, and I hope I say this right, prosthodontist.
6: The dentist, close, close enough. Enough.
3: Uh, Seventeen years of experience, and she has recently undergone extensive education in the field of sleep and airway dentistry in the U.S. So, if you've got any questions about nasal mouth breathing, um, get on get on the text line. She treats adults and children for mouth breathing, snoring, sleep apnea, and a special focus on tongue ties wonderful to have you both in the studio. Um, Dr. Delphine, if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about your area of specialism and where tongue ties kind of dovetail
2: with that. Mm, Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having us Pleasure. (laughs) Nice to be here. Um, My area of speciality is really um, babies with feeding difficulties, so breastfeeding babies, but also babies who have issues with feeding with the bottle. And um, usually we need a full assessment, so really um trying to understand where why there is a difficulty so with the breast it will be checking the position um assessing the mother's supply and then doing um, oral uh, assessment so assessing uh, the mouth and deciding uh, if there is any structure that is uh, preventing the baby to feed properly and same with the bottle. We probably look at the way the baby is feeding. The bottle is adequate. The teeth is adequate. So,
3: um. How how common is it for women to have problems with breastfeeding? I would say quite common. It's, it's
2: hard You're to very have, busy. Yeah, <laughs> quite busy. Quite busy but, uh, I wish it wasn't. I yeah. wish I it wasn't. Too. But,
3: uh, I mean, I just said to you off air, I haven't seen you for about nine years. Yeah. And my daughter's just turned nine. And I yeah. drove, uh, I think you we were in Murdiff at that point, with a sobbing baby. And I was a sobbing new mother. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly distressing yes. as a as a new parent to not do something that you thought was going to come very naturally. Exactly. And mm-hmm. to maybe think that you're not going to have the feeding experience that you took for granted mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So I'm sure mm-hmm. you do a, a bit of counselling as well as, yeah. as long as practical help. <laughs> um, as I said, lots of messages coming in for you um, on the breastfeeding front, but we're talking tongue ties in general today. And Tina, you see children from the age of four all the way up to adults. Would you mind giving us some definitions what you know what what is a tongue tie what's the medical term that we're going to be discussing between now and four?
6: so the very medical term for being tongue tied is called ankyloglossia and uh, it basically means that we all have a a string of tissue underneath our tongues but for some individuals it's going to be a bit more tight which is not going to allow the tongue to do the functions that it's supposed to do
3: what are the functions that a tongue is supposed
6: to do? This was, you know, uh, even as a dentist, it was mind-blowing when I actually recognised how much the tongue is supposed to do. It's supposed to help with breastfeeding, with speech... It's the first part of the digestive system. We start with, you know, moving food around right here, going down into our intestines. But it's also supposed to help grow the face and the jaw. So this whole upper craniofacial region, as we call it, is grown by the stimulus of the tongue, pushing everything outward and forward. And the other big role that it has is it helps with correct nasal breathing. So the tongue is like an on-off switch for breathing. If the tongue is up in the roof of the mouth, you get nasal breathing. If it is down, it's switched off and you get more mouth breathing.
3: And if that tissue is shortened, tighter, the tongue can't reach the roof of the mouth. So you're more prone to mouth breathing. Am I understanding that right?
6: That's correct. You're more prone to nasal congestion and mouth breathing with the tongue that lies low.
3: We are going to be talking about why this can happen and ultimately the impact on children, babies and even adults. Um, from speech development, growth of the face we've just touched on there and ultimately why a diagnosis can be helpful and what treatment can look like. Plus, is it overdiagnosed? We've had a message here asking exactly that. Why are we suddenly hearing about it so much when we didn't for thousands of years? <laughs> We have the Airways dentist herself, Dr. Tina, in the studio. She treats children and adults for mouth breathing, snoring, sleep apnea with a special focus on tongue ties. And we've stolen away Dr. Delphine from a very busy clinic um, where she is a lactation consultant, um, postgraduate degree in women's health. And she treats mothers and babies with medical issues relating to infant feeding and breastfeeding. Can we talk about how untreated tongue ties can impact various aspects. If we could start with babies, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Delphine, mm-hmm. how can it impact their ability to feed?
2: Um, from, so we have to distinguish the mother's side and the baby side. So mother's side is quite obvious. You could have uh, pain. Um, this is the most common symptom, I would say. Um, and even uh, if the breast is d- not drained properly, you could have mastitis, engorgement, block ducts. And then uh, affect the supply also, because the baby is supposed, while feeding, driving the supply. So supply course, and demand. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And then from the side of the baby, uh, inefficiency, weight gain issues, um Cluster feeding, constantly feeding, very long feeds, mm-hmm. uh, just inability to get the milk efficiently. So. We've
3: had a number of messages about falling asleep on the bottle. So we are going to go to the text line after half past three. Um, what about in, in older children? You mentioned their growth of the face, and, you know, uh, inability to breathe through your nose. You've got quite a list there. What, how do you check for it and what are we looking for?
6: So we're looking more to connect the dots. Uh, The the tongue tie has an effect on various systems in in the craniofacial region, but sometimes even on the body. And while it's not, nothing's a definite to say A causes B, if we gather the whole history and we can understand what is the function, then we can see function is affected. So let's say in children, uh, picky eating or with not wanting to chew hard foods, um, if their tonsils, adenoids have been removed, but children are still snoring, they're grinding their teeth. They have a lot of jaw tension, sensory in the mouth. Their baby teeth have come in. There's no spacing in the baby teeth, which is a sign that the tongue is not growing the jaw like it needs to. Um, If they're mouth breathing with nasal congestion or sometimes even without nasal congestion, they still continue to just keep their mouth open. If they're tired by day because of that.
3: So not, get, not getting the quality restful sleep.
6: Yeah. Uh, even when the swallow is not correct because the tongue tie can cause that, you can get more frequent ear infections or colds and coughs last longer. So these aspects together tie in with say, okay, there was poor breastfeeding history. Now we see all of this. Then we go into assess around the tone of the tongue.
3: What about in
6: adults? Yeah, so the adults compensate really well. You know, we start to see lesser direct symptoms around it. I haven't seen an adult who says that they're a picky eater anymore, right? (laughs) Um, Crowded teeth, you know, if you needed extractions uh, or orthodontics, um, which was severe. If you have temporomandibular joint pain, so that's the jaw joint, we call it TMD. Mm -hmm. It's a dysfunction. So, you know, uh, because of grinding your teeth, etc. If you have a hard time swallowing pills, A lot of neck and shoulder tension because the tongue ties result in breathing issues, forward head posture, some amount of anxiety, but also mouth breathing.
3: Interesting. Right. Well, Naz has been in touch saying... Is there a test that adults can do to see if they've got a tongue tie? I've never been able to roll my tongue, but assumed it was genetic. Great question.
6: All right. So not roll your tongue, but we're talking, uh, the earlier tests used to all be about sticking the tongue out, and that's not accurate. You can have an anterior or a posterior tongue tie and still stick your tongue out. But we're looking for the lift of the tongue, especially in the back of your mouth. So generally speaking, the tongue should always lie in the roof of your mouth. Whenever you are not eating or talking, it should lie in contact with the roof of your mouth. But an easy test would be to see if you can do nice, loud clicks. You know I want a demonstration. All right, we're going to sound it. It sounds like this. But, you know, look at yourself as you do them and you want to kind of see that string up your jaw move down. And uh, that's that's one of the good signs. It is not, tongue ties are not a visual uh, thing at most times. We do need to assess function to know whether that's a thing or not.
3: Right, lots of questions on this. Um, we've had a message from Basma saying, I've read that too much folic acid can cause lip and tongue ties. Is there any truth in that? Dr. Delphine, is this, is there any research into this?
2: Mm, some research nothing very conclusive but there's a question on it's not really the folic acid is i mean it's the folic acid because it's the synthetic form so as 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 opposed to the folate mm-hmm. the one that you get naturally so, so from a
3: diet good. you wouldn't worry about overdosing no. on your folate. but if you're no. if you're taking folic acid mm-hmm. yes. it needs to be under doctor's instructions i mean i guess that why question is is interesting but also not that relevant because if you've got it then you
6: need to make a decision
3: mm-hmm. what, what is there any research in terms of the why that you'd be interested in dr tina
6: what i do see is that it is very often genetic if one baby's had it and Dr. Delphine's seen them, the older siblings come to see me. Mm-hmm. Um, I often see that, you know, as we're assessing the kids, the parents can actually say a lot that, yes, I also couldn't do A, B and C in well, my childhood.
3: This is what happened when I brought my girls to yeah. see you yeah. and I got diagnosed at age 40 with a severe tongue <laughs> tie. Yeah, but it doesn't I'm
6: affect gonna function.
3: Be, I'm not going to be demonstrating my inability <laughs> to click on the radio. But it's interesting because it doesn't affect function. Um, to my to my mind, I mean, you grow up thinking whatever you're going through or experiencing is normal so i've got i've got no counter counter reference um but a question i guess is is it ever too late to have the snip can i ask you dr delphine if you know if a child is coming in with what you would you know define as a significant tongue tie that's impacting their ability to feed whether that is bottle or breast how do you take the decision that um a procedure is needed
2: um i mean First is uh, we we really assess the function, so if the function is affected and it's really a decision also with the parents, we discuss with the parents, so it's uh, like we give them information and uh, they decide, but I think... uh, when, when function is affected, it's quite clear that we want to advise That's probably the, the best thing to do for the baby. Would you mind demystifying what ha- would happen
3: in a baby and then we'll talk about children after half-past. So is that something that you would do in clinic? Is it, you know, what? anesthetic? What, what, how, 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 how would you deal with it?
2: So, it's, yeah, it's done in the clinic. So uh, usually in the same appointment, we don't need uh, several appointments if the family is ready and the baby is ready for the procedure. Um, we swaddle the baby um we have a nurse uh, has assisting us to lift up the tongue and then we do a quick snip uh, i use scissors some practitioners can use lasers so it's really i would say as quick as doing a vaccine wow. so, uh, we try to keep it as brief as possible because it's one thing very important we are very keen on having the baby feed immediately after so straight, on for, breast or straight on breast unless they refuse of course mm. we respect that um because um yeah that's so that's the idea so a brief procedure um with uh, the parents can be in the room in my case um can be a bit different in the hospitals sometimes they take them to the theater but it's also very brief and uh so not something very complicated, I would say.
3: Well, lots of text messages coming in on this, and we are going to go to your questions in just a few minutes. Three, we've had messages going: Do children grow out of tongue ties? Um, obviously, some those of you getting in touch with symptoms with questions, um, messages about breastfeeding. Noelle wants to know: Does having a C-section delay your milk coming in, or have any ability um, or impact on your ability to breastfeed? Joining us in the studio, a duo of experts, delighted to be joined by Dr Delphine. She's an international board-certified lactation consultant, French family doctor, who's dedicated her practice to almost exclusively treating mothers and babies with medical issues relating to feeding, breastfeeding. We're talking tongue ties today and also in the studio the airways dentist herself, Dr Tina. She treats children and adults for mouth breathing, snoring, sleep apnea and does have a special focus on tongue ties. And we've had lots of messages. We're going to try and get through. No disrespect to the police. I'm probably going to ditch a song so we can get through all the messages, ladies. So um, a really interesting point here from Lisa saying, I just had my second baby last week Congratulations! Oh, congratulations. Um, and a nurse says she has a mild tongue tie we're doing better with the breastfeeding but it made me wonder why are babies so often being diagnosed with tongue ties these days when for many thousands and thousands of years it wasn't addressed unless it was and I'm unaware of the surgical history is this something similar to endometriosis where there's just more awareness medical help these days? Or do younger mothers on balance find it easy to breastfeed and people like me, who have children at geriatric ages, find they need more help? Anyway, I'm just curious about the whole thing and please give my nine-day-old daughter Claire her first radio shout-out. Hi, Claire and Mum Lisa. Um, That's such a really interesting point. I mean, you've been working for decades in medicine, Dr Delphine. Is this a modern phenomenon or is it, as Lisa's pointing out, a bit more awareness, which is bringing more mums into clinic?
2: There's probably more awareness and especially after the 1990s, I would say, where there was uh, more awareness also about breastfeeding. Because there was a time where there was a lot of um, bottle feeding culture and uh, breastfeeding was not uh, that much the norm. But I want to come back on the it wasn't there for a thousand years, not exactly, because we have record of this procedure being done in the Middle Ages the tools we are using to cut the tongue ties, they used to be in the obstetric tools. So when the, they were seeing that at birth, they were just cutting it sometime without even telling the parents, which is not a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, in France, the Louis XIII King, we have a report of him getting his tongue tie treated. Well, there you go. Uh, You're in good so, company. Um, so, you, <laughs> you, um, it, it is nothing, not a new procedure.
3: But well, I think awareness is really key. And I just said yeah. to fair, you know, that I, it really breaks my heart to think about the number of of mums who are struggling, you know, in pain, unable to breastfeed, not knowing that pain is a sig- you know a significant signal that something could be wrong, and also not knowing where to go. So this is why mm. conversation like this is are so so important. You mentioned before about the procedure, yes. and I wanted to ask you about before and after in terms yes. of the timing, aftercare, and things like that. And I guess the holistic approach that you must take as a clinic as well, Dr. Delphine. Yes,
2: exactly. I think this is a very important point. Um For example, when we say this is a mild tongue tie, the first thing we want to do we want to assess the wool feeding, the situation, how the feeding is going on, is the position adequate. Uh, so rule out other reasons for this uh, for this nipple pain, and there are many. It can be an infection, can be a position issue, and another point uh, that is very important it can be some uh, muscular tension in the neck muscle. For example, if a baby has a torticollis can be the result, for example, of a medicated birth with uh, use of forceps, use of ventus, C-section when the birth was a bit difficult. That can create some tensions around the neck, around the jaw, and that can really affect the mobility of the tongue. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we are talking about a a borderline tongue tie, but we want to make sure that there's no tension in the muscles around. So when we do the before assessment, I think that would be wrong to just open the mouth of the baby, see a frenulum and then say, this is a tongue tie, go for surgery. That's the wrong path. We want first a feeding assessment. That's very important. Breast or bottle. We also want to observe the feeding of the baby, even with a bottle, How the mechanics. And then um, we often work with the osteopaths, mm-hmm. the physio-chiropractors, uh, to release any muscular tension. So it's a bit like if you are doing a knee surgery and you don't do physio before and you don't f- do physio after. So sometimes I say when the p- parents are coming, they are referred by lactation consultant. I would say baby's not ready for procedure mm-hmm. because if I do the SNP too early, we have a risk of complication, we have a risk of reattachment, we have a risk of... So that's very important. Um,
3: what about, Dr. Tina, when you're working with children, you know, age four upwards and, and even adults, how does that team come into play to make sure you're maximizing the procedure and the effects you can get from it?
6: Right. So I like to use the sentence that, you know, tongue tie release is not a procedure, but it is a process. And um, it's a bit more of an acute problem with babies where, you know, things need to be done immediately to restore that breastfeeding relationship. Mm-hmm. We have a bit more of a luxury of time with children and with adults. And the team is usually made of the myofunctional therapist, an osteopath, a dentist and a release provider. And, you know, uh, in this case, I am the release provider and the dentist. Um, so we need to make sure that we have good tongue tone which is what comes from myofunctional therapy, also done by speech and language therapists, that we have a free tongue, which is what the release is going to give, but also tongue space, like a garage for this tongue to park into <laughs> once the you know the tongue is strong enough and knows its way there. And that's where dentists and orthodontists come in together. To the text
3: line we go, Dr. Tina and Dr. Delphine in the studio. We've just got a few minutes left. So if you have got any questions, queries, need some clarity, now is the time to pick up your phone and maybe even faster to give us a call on zero four eight seven one double five double zero. You can be anonymous and message here saying, my son had a speech delay, has had disturbed sleep, plus keeps getting nasal congestion very often. Plus, as mentioned by your experts, a less muscular face. Could that be linked to a tongue tie? Well, I'm not expecting a diagnosis over the text <laughs> line, Dr. <laughs> Tina, but...
6: I would say that he should have an evaluation. This sounds like a child that deserves an evaluation by somebody who knows. Because mm. unfortunately, as dentists, we were not trained to look at posterior tongue ties or different, understand the functions around tongue ties. And message here saying, do children grow out of them? Um, does it affect speech?
3: My son is now eight, doesn't pronounce his S's, but very eloquent, so it's not noticeable. Never picked up on it at school.
6: In my opinion, no. If function is affected, you do not outgrow tongue ties. The body just learns to compensate in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. and life goes on till those compensations give way. Um, a message for you, Dr. Delphine. This is from Noel saying, does having a
3: C-section delay your milk coming in? or have any impact on ability to breastfeed?
2: Uh, It can, especially if it is emergency C-section. So I would say any stress surrounding birth. If it is, for example, a planned C-section that is very peaceful, usually not. So it's all stress-related. Context. Yes, it can, Okay. Um, No name on
3: this one saying, um, Hi guys, thank you so much for this. Um, I've got a seven-week-old baby, was breastfeeding for 10 days and switched to formula due to the pain. First-time mum didn't know any different. I was told when he was born he did have a tongue tie but didn't know that it could affect breastfeeding and a midwife didn't do anything or seem concerned. Now booked for a procedure at the weekend uh, my son struggles with wind loses latch on the bottle, feeds half feeds all the time because he's falling asleep on the bottle he's unsettled most of the day so I assume he's hungry just after some reassurances and some success stories because I'm really anxious so worried mum there does it mm. sound like this is a, a good path for them to pursue? Yeah
2: I think it's a really good idea that this baby has an evaluation and it's uh, there's probably something there and uh, it's nice. Okay. That, uh,
3: all right. Listen, all the very, very best. Um, Doctor Tina, I wanted to end with you if you don't mind, in terms of if this is, you know, ringing any kind of alarm bells with people and as I said with a lot lot of people getting in touch with, you know, symptoms and worries about in children and not necessarily with with babies as such. Do you I don't know how to put this. Do you go to your family doctor first? Do you go to an expert such as you? What's the
6: process in terms of getting the assessment and treatment? Since we don't have great awareness worldwide around this and there are very few trained providers, um, it doesn't help going. Most pediatricians are not aware around the long-term impacts of tongue ties. Dentists are not aware either. So you do kind of have to reach out to somebody who's talking about having mm. specialty training on tongue ties, on airway, nasal breathing, and start from there, unfortunately. That's not an unfortunate. You just go it, get
3: to have, <laughs> have some face. Time with you, um, with your permission, ladies. If people want to get in touch and ask for your details, could I share your websites and contact details? Because we've run out of time, but we haven't run out of questions, and I know your expertise knows no limits. So, yeah, the be Instagram
6: okay. is a great way for mm-hmm. me. Airways yeah. dentist, Airway dentist Dubai. Okay, yes. brilliant.
3: If you want to send me the word doc on 4001 i would happily connect you but been an absolute pleasure and as i said very happy we could get these two experts in the same room at the same time dr delphine family doctor and uh iblc so lactation consultant extraordinaire and the fantastic dr tina um sleep and airway dentist and um on hand on instagram as well some great resources there you Listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer.
0: With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken.
3: We have got a brace of experts in the studio today. We have got Dr Vito and behaviourist Anna from Vets and Pets, rather confusingly. And it's great to have you both in the same room at the same time because we can tackle health issues, behavioural issues, how those can often dovetail in different Different manifestations. Um, Anna, what's keeping you busy? I'm seeing a lot in the UK press about pandemic puppies. So Mm -hmm. dogs that were got during lockdown for... We're working from home. We've got some some company. Keep the kids distracted. And the behaviour is atrocious. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing anything mirrored in the UAE along
1: those lines? Mm.
3: Not to the same extent? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what is keeping you busy?
1: Well, mm, about... um dogs behavior dog behavior problems and but also a lot of behavior problems related cats really yeah naughty cats yeah
3: okay right here's a question for you i was talking to georgia tolly on the agenda earlier saying what we were talking about this afternoon she's like you need to help me with our compound cat so it's a she said the word fat i don't want to body shame sumo but a fat cat called sumo is terrorizing the neighbourhood, intimidating animals and even people.
2: Mm-hmm. Says
3: that he will stand his ground, will bristle, will go to attack and it's causing a bit of distress.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What can they do about this?
1: Can I answer? Yeah, okay, George needs fine. answers. <laughs> so, first of all, you have to check if the cat is castrated. Mm. Can help a lot. Second one, uh, what I always suggest is uh, try to provide uh, um food because sometimes also this one uh, not having so much food can create this kind of uh, problems also they become very nervous as you as is normal and they can attack other cats. So they become even more territorial.
3: So almost like guarding behaviours that you might see
1: yeah. in dogs. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So
3: Suma could get even bigger.
1: <laughs> but,
3: be- no. but better behaved.
1: Yes, definitely. Okay.
3: Dr. Vito, always lovely to see you. Hi. How hi. are you? What's, keep- what's keeping you busy? What's coming into clinic? Uh,
0: well, um, through the, the Christmas period and the festivity, We had a lot of diarrhea, Ah. you know, classic, right? Diarrhea and vomit uh, and because of, uh, so gastrointestinal disturbances definitely. So lots of of stealing off the Christmas table. Exactly, treats Mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, I am fortunate we have a couple of um, uh, foreign body. Um, We removed from cats. Obviously, cats love Christmas trees, (laughs) you know, Ah. yes, and love plastic. And yeah, we had a couple of cases where obviously related to, you know, the festive Season. Tinsel. You know, yeah.
3: We have got a question. Um, well, actually, we were talking on the show yesterday with an orthopedic surgeon. We were talking about osteoarthritis. Right. Which led me to think what about our pets? Bone health, osteoarthritis, yeah. bone pain. Um, how does it, how and why would it manifest, and what are some of our options? If you wouldn't mind talking from a clinical point of view, and also maybe Ab- Anna, we can talk to you about behavior Absolutely. as well.
0: Absolutely, you know, is uh, um, y- you can compare to what happens in humans. Obviously, we are mammals, so we respond in it right, the same way. So uh, osteoarthritis is a condition that affects uh, the bones, um, mainly the the, the joints, and appears mainly in uh, uh, old age, but can be also uh, genetically. It's a trait, a genetic trait. So
3: our so Certain breeds predisposed.
0: Uh, well, uh, yes, there are some large breeds that have some uh, genetic traits, or um, I don't know, uh, hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia. So there is a not a perfect joints, and therefore we have uh, um, earlier, um, you know, the osteoarthritis occur earlier. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, and how they manifest is um, uh, classic things. You know, they get stiff. You know, uh, sometimes problems getting up and down. Correct, correct. Okay. Sometimes uh, the, the the biggest uh, mistake the owner can uh, do is uh, thinking that their old dogs don't, it doesn't do, doesn't like to do uh, many exercise because it's old. Well, it's not. You know, so there and, is.
3: and by avoiding exercise and mobility, it's going to make them age faster.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. D- you know, range of, yeah, range of motion, stiffness, you know, we don't want that, you know, we don't want that.
3: A message are saying how important is something like hydrotherapy to help joints?
0: Absolutely, that is brilliant. So, hydrotherapy is something that we can do in combination with uh, obviously a medical approach. We should first obviously examine the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they help also some uh, uh, x-rays to see the health of the joint, first of all. Then um, osteoarthritis, uh, uh, it's um, uh, as a result gives uh, uh, pain. So therefore, it's important to have some pain uh, management and anti-inflammatory drug on board. And uh, yes, um, f- hydrotherapy is great because you still maintain the the range of movement, uh, uh, eliminating the the you know the gravity mm-hmm. you know, and therefore the impact uh, on the joint is uh, way less. So it's brilliant.
3: And, and from a from a behavioral point of view you Mm -hmm. know dogs are probably a bit more demonstrative of pain but cats hide it a little bit better how can we as owners be tuned into any issues they might be having?
1: As always always, I I ask the the, the owners is observing the cats because um, uh, if you see any kind of changing on their behavior sometimes is is related to a vet problem more than a behavior problem psychological Mm -hmm. problem so it's very important to detect that one if there is any kind of change. That means, for example, even peeing a pooing outside the litter tray sometimes is related to osteoarthrosis because also going in the litter tray and moving in a small place, to, you know, they walk, Turning. they dig, etc., can be very difficult for them. So they choose to don't go there and to change the place. And so this one is not just a behaviour problem, mm-hmm. is related to a vet
3: problem. And you two working in conjunction. Well, joining us from Vets and Pets on Pets and Vets, we've got Dr Vito and Behaviourist Anna. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Joining us in studio from Vets and Pets, we've got Dr Vito and Behaviourist Anna. So. Any questions for those guys? This is your chance. We've just been having a little look at the photos that are coming in. Oh, <laughs> so, cute. so cute. We've had Obi, the rescue dog from Saudi. We've had a very lazy roxinator. And we've also got a cat called Lily. Right, let's, let's talk about Lily. Dom's been in touch saying she's seven months old, very playful, makes some weird noises when she's in the bathroom, and our old male cat, Nico, likes to pounce on her unexpectedly. Our cats capable of showing jealousy behaviorist Anna what say you
1: yeah definitely, so jealousy is included on the feelings that they can they can have so it's something that is recognized and uh, yeah they can they can act in this way although also and other things that they can use is for example when uh, Sometimes I have uh, I have owners that say, "Oh, but they love each other." Looks, he's kissing the other one. In the reality, it's not a real kiss. It's just a way to push gently away the other cat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So there are a lot of ways that uh, when, they use it.
3: When, if you get worried about some of these behaviors, what are some of the things that you can do? You know, if it's coming out as aggression, or, you know, attacking, they mm. can't be together.
1: I always I always suggest to prevent. Okay, the attack, etc. So as soon as you realize that uh, there's something that is changing on the behavior between the cats, okay, you can gently do something that, for example, calling the cats, uh, pay their attention. So this one is uh, always the technique that we use to don't go finally to that direction. Okay. All right.
3: Oh, my goodness. I've just opened a photo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Separation anxiety. We're going to come to that after half past. But, Harry, thank you for the photo. Let's just say a, a scene of destruction in your home from a very happy looking dog. Looks pretty pleased with himself. Mm-hmm. Um, can we, let's, let's stay with cats, actually, because Adnan's been in touch saying, um, what is the age for neutering male cats and any aftercare tips? Well, does it depend on the size, uh, of the breed, Doctor Vito? Would do, you? Are there any general guidelines? No, um,
0: generally speaking, we suggest to do it around five to six months. Okay, that is uh, um, an age where uh, we prevent um, talking about behavior. We prevent the, the the classic marking behavior when normally they enter into um, puberty, and uh, so. And generally speaking, they have to be at least you know two kilograms you know in weight, so it's safer you know for general aesthetic okay
3: Um, and with dogs you know that there's probably a bit more of a wider range yes
0: and dogs according to the breed I normally suggest to if you're going to neuter a dog to go at least uh, 12 months but there are some uh, uh, guidelines according to the breed where you can do it earlier but generally speaking I prefer to wait until uh, they are one year old because the testosterone although uh, it doesn't uh, uh, support the growth but helps you know differentiate you know males and females so you know, stronger bones, thicker joints, and bigger muscle.
3: And um, what about the second part of that question about aftercare tips after na- neutering a male cat in particular? What? I mean, some of these cats are super active. How can yeah. you keep them still enough yeah. to, to, to Well, from,
0: from our side, they say try to keep them quiet. Yeah, and you're like, <laughs> okay, how? No, okay, for uh, for. Cats for male cats, uh, the aftercare is very very easy. I have to be honest with you. Um, most of the time, when we perform a procedure, we, we do a very tiny incision, uh, and there's not uh, there is not so um, you know. Uh, there's no problemat; it's not so problematic like could be with beef, with, uh, with a spay for a female. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, normally I suggest to not to play, you not know, to you know to engage in a play for a few days. That's not too it. much excitement. Yeah, exactly. Okay,
3: Dr. Vito, with us today from Vets and Pets and Behaviourist Anna as well. We've had questions about um, introducing a new adopted dog to the family and how to do that. That's for the gorgeous Obi. Um, and a question here about calming my six-month-old male cat for nail cuts and ear cleans it keeps having a bite dr
1: anna does anything come to mind for that yeah definitely what uh, is uh, better to do is uh, starting to touch for example make exercises when only you are touching the pose okay so they can become familiar on this kind of uh, manipulation so fine you can touch without Um, going for clipping just touching just um, took the the nails out etc do these kind of things then slowly slowly show the scissors that you are using leave the scissors there so they can sniff they can become okay this one not not dangerous and then you can start to clip the nails you can also at the beginning going for one two you don't have to clip (laughs) all the nails at the same time yeah (laughs) just
3: like that it's it's so interesting to think about cat psychology isn't it? Yeah. But then, and I'm certainly not accusing Adnan of doing this, but you know the idea of chasing your cat around the living room, trying <laughs> to grab it with the nail scissors
1: definitely no. not a good Familiarization, idea. Familiarisation yes.
3: exposure Always. therapy <laughs> all of this. Okay, <laughs> joining us in studio from Vets and Pets, we've got behaviourist Anna and Dr Vito. We are going to go to the text line after half past I said, questions about introducing a new dog to the family, um, if you're looking to adopt, about separation anxiety I'm desperate to show you this picture guys, it's absolutely gold and i've got one very similar where my dog destroyed a chair and smiled in the photo
6: this is pets and vets on afternoons with helen farmer
2: with Proplan, groundbreaking science life-changing nutrition
3: not one but two experts in the studio from vets and pets rather confusingly we've got dr Vito and we've got behaviorist anna and how do you feel about a quick fire round guys we've got a lot of people to help out Sure, let's do, let's do it. All right, um, message here, and this is from Nikita, who's got beautiful rescue dog Obi saying, What are your suggestions for introducing a new adopted dog to the family? We want a sibling for Obi, but don't want him to feel jealous. Great, Annie, can we start with you on yeah. the behavioral front? Things you can do before you know, if some of the questions you need to ask yourself on the behavioral yeah. front.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So Going slowly, slowly as usual. So the dog needs to become familiar on the on the environment and he can meet every every member of the family slowly, slowly. Don't push the dog do something that he doesn't want, that he's not prepared to do that one at the beginning. So be patient because maybe he can be under stress or maybe for, there are cases that for sure he's under stress. So be patient, provide him his time and wait a little bit that the dog is ready to go to the next step. Okay. We thought about adopting a new dog
3: a few months ago um, and went to a rescue centre. I haven't talked about this on the radio, actually, um, because our dog is turning 11 next month and unfortunately he's not very well and we're kind of, my son's really cold. We're, we're succession planning, basically, about yeah. you know our, our other dog not being um, lonely, grieving too, too much. And it just wasn't the right time. You know, it really wasn't because our old dog was getting distressed and we thought, you know what, we're going to wait until the right time. Patience. And also a match of the dogs, those personalities, which is why fostering can be fantastic. Yeah. What about the actual introductions in terms of bringing a new dog into the home, the logistics, the smells, the rooms and things exactly. like that? Exactly.
1: It's just that, Anna. step by step. So you can start with showing the dogs to each other, not going too much close to each other and be all the dogs under control. So if you decide to take a dog on a leash also, the other one has to be on the leash. They have to stay on the same level when you are introducing to c- two dogs. And or if you decide because you already know that the two dogs have nice temperament, okay, fine, but both without leash. So, again, equal. same level. Yes, equal. Okay. And slowly, slowly, under control, under supervision. And it's okay. Talking a lot. Please talk with your pets. Talk is important. Use the correct tone when you are talking with them. And it's very, very important also that one. But don't be worried because normally the easier introduction are dogs and dogs, dogs and cats. What? Yeah. (laughs) And the most difficult one normally is cats and cats. (laughs) Well, there you go. Isn't that interesting? OK, Behaviourist
3: Anna with us today. Uh, Dr Vito on hand as well. Let's talk cats because we've had a message here saying we're thinking about taking in a stray cat that we've been feeding for some time. But what should we do? Should we vaccinate it? Great question. There are so many animals in yeah. desperate need of homes right now. And some cats are very happy to be doing their own thing. Street cats. That's very true. Some, however, you know, would really love a a welcoming home and a regular food supply. So if you have identified an animal that you think you'd love to bring into the family, a cat in this case, what should you do?
0: Uh, First thing, you go to the vet. Okay, so, and not because I'm sorry, because I'm a vet, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, obviously uh, physical examination, make sure that everything's okay. Um, yes, vaccination, prophylaxis is, yes, you know, the pillar of, uh, you know, the medicine well-being. Bit
3: a of, bit of deworming. Yeah,
0: correct. So deworm- so any prophylaxis or uh, deworming, uh, fleas and ticks um, control, although we don't have a huge amount of fleas in this country, which is okay, but there are lots of ticks. Uh, and uh, vaccination and uh, obviously um the vet will uh, decide whether or not to suggest some uh, some tests um the country unfortunately we have lots of uh, um FIV, which is um the um, feline HIV, uh, leukemia, so that we can actually rule it out, and then um, probably a, a quick scan with a wood lamp just so, to see whether or not we have some ringworms. Mm-hmm. Uh, re- re- let's remember at home, we- it's very, very difficult to catch something for our pets, so very safe. The only thing things that we can uh, we can catch is um, sometimes ringworms. Okay, but it's just a headache; it's not dangerous, yeah. so it's good to screen them.
3: So, peace of mind, vet checked, head to toe. And then presumably get them on a good diet that's going to suit whatever. Absolutely. They need. Absolutely. Okay. Now we come to Nacho. <laughs> it's been my favorite photo of the day. Nacho, I'm, I'm guessing, is maybe some kind of cockapoo, maybe? What do you think? Yeah. yeah. Surrounded by torn up tissue paper <laughs> with a big old smile on his face. So we're talking separation anxiety. We're having issues with our puppy. Any advice on how to get around this? We've tried snuffle mats, lick mats. They only distract him for a short time before he barks, howls and destroys things. He's left maximum for one to two hours a day. Mm -hmm. When I say, Harry, I feel your pain, I showed a photo to Anna and Dr. Vito where my parents had driven a chair, big wicker chair from Muscat to Dubai. Day one, Jarvis Cocker Spaniel (sighs) shredded it. (laughs) And we've got a photo of him with exactly the same smile of... Look mum. Look dad. Look what I did. I hate it. I'm not I'm going to be honest I hated that dog for quite some time because he Poor thing. I Poor did.
1: Baby. I no. did
3: because I'd come home and it was stressful. It was a case of what's been destroyed. It wasn't an if. It's like what is it this time? Is it, you know, shelving or, you know, sunglasses or flip-flops. And then suddenly you look back and go, oh that hasn't actually happened mm-hmm. for a while. Well, tell us about separation anxiety, Anna. Mm-hmm. What do we need to know about it before we move on to Nacho
1: in particular? <laughs> yeah, so um, first of all, you have to think that for sure you you are stressful when you come home and you find home in these conditions. But you have to imagine how high was the level of the stress of this dog to do that. Mm-hmm. They are not enjoying when they are doing that. One. It's just a way to <sighs> release the stress, Okay. So, and when you come home and you see the smile, it's not because, oh, look what I did. No, it's because, oh, you are back. Aww, this one. Now so, I feel
6: awful. <laughs>
1: no, no, please. No, don't. <laughs> but in any case, yes, this one is exactly the feelings that they, that they have. So um, it's very important when you come back in this condition, try to breathe Don't shout on the dog. Mm -hmm. He's not doing that one because, oh, you left me alone, so I do that. It's not
3: not a manipulation.
1: They don't have these kind of feelings at all. So what we have to do is uh, starting to work on the anxiety, on the anxiety problem. So going slowly, slowly, leaving him also Five minutes without you. Uh, so you go out from the house, there are exercises that you can practice to go to become longer the time that he can spend alone in the house. Mm-hmm. There are also something that you can use like relaxing music when you are leaving the house, you can put the music going on, he can help. Or particularly toys that is that is making them focus on the toy instead of thinking, oh, I'm alone, oh, they abandoned me. Because this one is the feeling that they have. I mean, it looks like Nacho's a puppy. And I think it's, it's interesting
3: to kind of point out that when they're puppy puppies, when they're tiny,
1: yeah. we're
3: all super excited about them and the kids are there and we're, we have to spend time with them because they're helping with their potty training. And then when they do get a bit older, we're probably more inclined to spend less time with them. And that could be a bit of a tipping point as well.
1: Yes, definitely. Okay. There was uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry,
0: there was a lot of uh, separation anxiety after COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah. to describe how different how cats and dogs are. Uh, um, during COVID, cats were getting stressed because people were at home too long. Mm-hmm. After COVID, dogs were getting stressed because people are leaving go to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. if that doesn't
3: perfectly <laughs> illustrate the difference. The cat's like, get out of my domain. You're normally at work now. <laughs> how interesting. Um, we are going to squeeze in just a couple more questions if we can uh Jasmine saying we've recently had her almost two-year-old lab spayed she was a rescue got her at 11 months we're advised to wait until three months after her first season to have the procedure just wondering dr Peter had advice on the specialist food containing hrt for example or advice on food post spaying great question
0: Yes, um, generally speaking, obviously after the spay, um, dogs will stop producing some hormones, and um, and therefore um, most of the time the hormones, the s- sexual hormones like uh, progesterone, estrogens, uh, they they there is a derivative of uh, cholesterol, and therefore if, as soon as they stop producing that cholesterol goes up. So it's ideal to use uh, you know low calorie intake. Uh, in order to avoid them to, you know, to, to gain weight, okay. generally speaking. But it's good to keep a track of the weight of your dog because not all the dogs need a different diet. Okay.
3: Thank you for that. And Keith saying, can ca- <laughs> I wish you had a picture of this. Can chow-chows change the colour of their tongues Teddy's tongue was 100% purple-black when he was younger. Now the sides are turning pink and the middle is a bruch, much brighter purple. He's six.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it can happen because obviously the, 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 it's a pigmentation, what they have. You know, it's classic chow-chow. has got like the blue tongue. Mm-hmm. There's a pigmentation. Sometimes pigmentation might change, might vary. Is it like our hair going yeah. grey? <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's put it like that, yeah, yeah.
3: But nothing to worry about. No,
0: no. Oh, as long as there's no ulceration, it is, the tongue looks normal, but it's different colour. No
3: guys thank you so much for your time oh, it's been an it, absolute yeah. whirlwind and loving all the messages and photos that have been coming in uh, Jim saying Bailey's been spayed today no puppies in her future oh Bailey rest up she's such a beautiful girl and thank you Finn saying Kong toys are great to give to dogs with something tasty in them before you leave home guys you are the best thank you so so much for your messages and of course for the expertise in the studio too